travel back in time to the year 1665, you would find yourself living in a nightmare world. Uh, the great bubonic plague had wrapped its invisible arms around entire cities, in fact, countries. 6,000 people were dying every single day. In modern cities like London, I have read at the height of the bubonic plague, people generally uh, resisted going outdoors because they believed that this disease was actually carried along by, if you can believe it, fresh air. And so they kept themselves from it. Now, they didn't know about microscopic organisms that uh, spread this disease by fleas, carried it around by rodents. The people actually believed that the enemy to fear was fresh air, carrying the disease from who knows where. And so they sealed themselves up in their homes as tightly as they could. They even burned foul-smelling potions, which filled the air with this foul smell, believing that that would take care of this, of this dangerous fresh air. In the meantime, chimneys were partially sealed, and rooms grew gray with smoke, and people sat in their homes with their eyes stinging and their lungs congested, convinced, or at least hoping that they were out of the reach of this deadly plague. Millions, of course, would die as the plague would make its way into their tightly sealed up homes. I thought what an illustration of the heart of sinful, unbelieving mankind to the coming judgment of God. Perhaps if you could somehow tightly seal yourself away with perhaps a few religious acts, maybe a, a burning a candle or two or saying a few prayers or giving away a little money to the guy that rings the bell outside of Walmart during Christmas or something along that lines, maybe showing up in church every so often and, and uh, doing a few good things to add. Maybe you can escape the encircling arms of the judgment of God. And beyond that, the, the predestined appointment for every man before the throne of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is no way to seal out the ultimate consummation of God's plan, not only for the planet, but every individual person as well. By the time you arrive at Revelation chapter 10, you need to understand that time is running out for people of the earth. By the end of the first six trumpet judgments, half the population on the planet has fallen to the plagues of God and the disasters that he has brought about. It's almost time for the seventh trumpet to be sounded by the seventh archangel. Contained in that seventh trumpet are all the rest of the bowls, all of the rest of the acts of these horrible days, including the last battle and the coming of Christ to reign. But before that seventh trumpet sounded, there is a pause in the action, much like there was a pause after the sixth seal before you got to the seventh seal. Now after the sixth trumpet, before you get to the seventh trumpet, there is again an interlude. And chapter 10 of Revelation is that interlude. It's a pause in the action. So let's pick it up at John's opening words in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And just the opening part where he introduces with these words, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, his face like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now you recognize, if you've been studying with us by now, that angels play a prominent role in the apocalypse. That is the judgment of, of God. They're involved in serving, worshiping, singing, 
praising God, delivering messages of doom and announcements of revelation and, and even more. In fact, there's even one angel that's going to have the, the special privilege of throwing Satan into the abyss where he will stay for a thousand years while Christ literally reigns upon the throne of David on earth. But you get the sense as you study uh, revelation thus far that angels have been waiting with anticipation. They're, they're, they're just sort of anxious to get this thing going. They are, they're longing, I believe, effectively for the final consummation of their glorious God as he delivers final and full judgment upon the planet to those who've scorned their creator and certainly the judgment upon their brother uh, angels who've fallen who are now called demons, who've betrayed God, who've battled God's will, who've battled God's people, who've battled God's plan now for thousands of years. And now John introduces us to yet another angel. This one he simply calls a strong angel who comes with a a rather special mission. Now there are those that would believe that this particular angel is Jesus Christ. I don't. Certainly in the Old Testament, Christ often appeared as the angel of the Lord, what theologians call a Christophany, that is an appearance of Christ. Uh, prior to his incarnation, and those are wonderful uh, texts to study in light of the fact that it was the pre-incarnate Christ. But you add to the the fact that never in, in the record of the New Testament after his incarnation does Christ ever appear as an angel again. He's taken on flesh, the flesh of man. And then, of course, you add to that truth the fact that the Lord has never referred to an angel in the book of Revelation. In fact, he's never referred to an angel in all of the New Testament. And furthermore, you'll notice soon that John will not worship this angel. The primary reason I don't believe this is Christ is the original language itself. John writes clearly translated into English. I saw another angel, another of the same kind is what he's saying. In other words, this angel is the same essence as the other archangels who've already appeared to sound their trumpets. In fact, this angel's appearance will match closely Daniel's a description of Gabriel in Daniel chapter 12. So more than likely, this is another archangel who now joins this scene with these other seven archangels who are sounding these seven trumpets. I want you to notice six rather amazing features of this angel. He writes, look again in verse 1, that this angel was clothed with a cloud. Clouds are often the vehicles in the Bible in which heavenly beings ascend or descend. Uh, however, here the cloud seems to be his clothing, more than likely than covering much of his, his body. Secondly, John writes that a rainbow was upon his head. The word for rainbow is the word iris. We use that today in ophthalmology. It refers to a circle of, of color. The Greeks use this very word to refer to the brilliant colors surrounding the circles in a peacock's colorful feathered tail. Perhaps you've seen those circles and the bright colors surrounding them. It's, of course, used to refer to the circle of color in a person's eyes. Uh, we have brown eyes or blue eyes. We don't say you have, you have beautiful irises. That's not very romantic. You say you have beautiful eyes, Right? I took my youngest daughter to the division of motor vehicles to get her driver's permit. She turned 15. Her birthday's on Halloween. and So on Halloween, we went to the DMV where she got her driver's permit. She drove me to church this morning. 
All of my known sins are confessed. I want you to know that. <laughs> no, and actually, she's a good driver. I think my eyes are closed, so I wouldn't know, but I, I think everything is okay. But this officer filled out her permit, you know, and asked her what color her eyes were. She has her mother's beautiful blue eyes. I'm just trying to dig out of that hole I've put myself in with her after church. Actually, that part's true. The Greeks had created in their pantheon a goddess named Iris. They believed that she was personified by the rainbow and served as a messenger of the gods. There is a kernel of truth in that, but of course it's entirely corrupted by idolatry. We know from scripture, don't we, that the original rainbow was in fact a message from the true and living God, a message that has lasted to this day, a message in the rainbow every time we see it to this day, given first to Noah as a sign that God would never cover the earth with a universal flood ever again, Genesis nine sixteen. That first judgment will not occur like that. The second judgment tells us, Peter does, that it's reserved for fire. No no fear of a universal flood, but certainly fear of fire. Well, this angel's head is surrounded then by this rainbow, this, these amazing colors. The same word used here for rainbow we saw earlier in chapter 4 to describe the rainbow encircling the throne of God, which would reveal that this angel represents then the authority and the power, uh, the throne of God, and the message he will deliver is from God. Notice, thirdly, that his face shone like the sun. He was simply brilliant and bright, like the angels who appeared at the tomb of Christ to announce his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, verse 4. It says they shone with dazzling brilliance. Fourth, notice his feet and legs were like pillars of fire. This is suggestive of his announcement having to do with judgment of God on earth. Now, fifth, and most importantly, verse 2 informs us that the angel has in his hand, presumably his left hand, uh, a little book, the text says, which was open. He's holding in his hand a book which was open. This isn't the scroll that we we saw in chapters 5 and 6 that only Christ was worthy to open. It would be correct to believe that this little book contains a small portion of the judgments yet to come. But the word used is Bibliridian. Bibliridian, which simply means a very small book, a small booklet, if you will, that speaks of God's revelation to John. By the way, the same Greek root word gives us our word biblion, from which we get our word Bible. We're holding in our hands the book. Now we attach the word holy to this book, that is, it's separated, it's set apart, it's distinct, it's different from any other book on the planet because as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, he called it holy. This is the holy scriptures. Why? Because unlike any other book, its author is God. It it attributes its origin to God himself. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that it is theopneustos, it is God's breath. It is God-breathed. This is the breath of God. And as the author, then, this is a set-apart book, this Biblion. Well, what this angel is holding is is a small Bibliridian. It's a different word. Uh, It's not the Bible. It's a small book that probably contains a portion of revelation yet to come. 
The final descriptive phrase concerning this amazing angel is his size. Verse 2, we're told, he placed his right hand or his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So huge was the appearance of this angel to John that his feet spanned this incredible distance, one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Now, there isn't any reason to take this any other way than literal or literally, which certainly allows for symbolism, and we can easily recognize the symbolism in his posture. That is, the authority of this angel spans land and sea. This is a universal message from the God of the universe. Now notice verse 3, and he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. Now evidently John has heard a lion roar. And so that's the picture that he chooses. Just like a lion roars, this was the sound of this angel. I have never heard a lion roar. I've heard a lion purr on an African reserve where I was tightly ensconced inside a jeep, but I could hear it through the window. So loud was that purring, it made me tremble right in here. I can't imagine one roaring. But that's, he said, this is what the sound was of this. He, he writes, he cried with a loud voice, which comes from the words phone megale. We reverse those two words and we come up with our own word, megaphone. It's like he had a megaphone. This was so loud, and the roaring was so unbelievably loud. It reverberated, as it were, around the world. Verse 3, when he had cried out, seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. All right, now, this is where Revelation really gets interesting, huh? Tough, and that's where you think, I was going to read the Bible through in one year, and I got to stuff like this, and I went back to the Gospel of John. Well, let me pull back and give you an aerial view of, of what's happening. Here's an angel descending, wrapped, as it were, in a cloud. He places one blazing foot on the land and one blazing foot on the the sea. He then shouts loudly, this roaring sound, and it reverberates around earth, the planet. And then John hears thundering. Seven would be significant, simply meaning it's the perfection or the, the completion of thunder. Often in the Bible, we hear of God's voice thundering. We've already come up with this in the book of Revelation. David speaks of the glory of God thundering. Psalm 29.3, Job writes of God's voice thundering in marvelous ways. Job 37.5, seven thunders means this is the perfection of God's own voice revealing truth of judgments yet to come. This would have been an awesome sight and sound. You see, this isn't just some loud booming. This is articulation of truth. It's saying something. It's speaking something. It's revealing something. And so John, as he's been doing, is ready to start writing it down. Okay, I hear that and I can understand what it's saying and I'm going to write it all down. This is what God is going to do yet in the future. And as he's preparing to write it down, verse 4, look again. John says, I was about to write it down, but God said, keep it sealed up. No, don't tell anybody this. So we don't have the fullest story, do we? Keep some of this back, seal it up, keep it a secret. Which is one of the clearest texts I have found that reveals the truth of something we've often said and certainly believe that the revelation of God is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient. In other words, 
What we hold in this holy biblion isn't everything we'd like to know, but it's everything we need to know. In fact, John wrote earlier in his gospel account, you remember of the life of Christ, and he said there were so many other things that Jesus Christ did that if they were written down in detail, the world wouldn't be able to contain the number of books that would have to be written. John 21, 25. So in other words, we don't have a, but a fraction of what Jesus Christ taught and what he did while on earth. And wouldn't you love a little more? Wouldn't that be great? I'd like more. I'd like one more verse, especially on certain things. I'd like a little more understanding. I would love to know about Christ's childhood. I'd like to know how Mary and Joseph responded to an eight-year-old living Lord. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying I have one of those in my home, but I would like to know how they responded. I mean, we know that he never did it. It was always his brothers and sisters, right? Right? They were probably irritated with life in the home with Jesus. He never got into trouble. It was never him. Well, we don't know everything we'd like to know, but we have been given everything we need to know. Now, let me ask you, let's just stop. Can you live with that? Can you live with that? Can you live with the fact that you just read God has chosen to keep some things to himself and not tell us? He said, John, you just keep this a secret. There are secret things that belong to him alone. He has chosen to withhold information and not reveal it to us. Can you live with that? Listen, saying, well, God knows and and I don't, isn't necessarily a cop-out. It may be a great statement of faith. You may have to exercise that today or tomorrow, next week. I don't know, but God knows. I haven't been given the answer. I don't have a verse on that, but I know that God knows and I will trust him. That isn't a cop-out, and don't use it that way either, would you? Well, God knows. Don't, don't let it cover for laziness or a lack of desire to study the word and, and, to, and to dig into it. Don't let it underscore your lack of of interest and hard work. Kind of like the college student I read about some time ago was taking his final exam at the end of the fall semester and he hadn't studied. And maybe you've been there in your own life and you're praying for inspiration, not recollection, right? And uh, he knew he was in trouble. He, he, um, He didn't know the answers to any of the questions, so he decided to play on the mercy of his professor and he wrote at the top of his exam... Uh, These words, only God knows the answers to these questions. He turned in his paper, went home for Christmas break, and during the break, he received in his mail his exam. His professor had written in large letters at the top, in that case, God gets an A and you get an F. Merry Christmas. (laughs) We don't avoid the challenges of life by shrugging our shoulders and saying, ah, whatever, God knows. But we can say it as a matter of deep and, and, and growing trust, as a matter of faith. Perhaps where you are living right now, without an answer, without an explanation, there is some present dilemma in your personal experience that remains an unanswered dilemma. 
saying, God knows, is, is the kind of belief that will prove your faith and deepen your trust in him like nothing else. God knows. And I don't. John, keep this a secret. No one is going to know until I explain it later on if I fully do. They'll just need to know they should continue trusting what I've revealed that they do need to know. Now notice verse 5. John goes further in describing what the angel does. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Interesting. This is the strongest reason yet to know this isn't Christ who could have sworn on himself and his own authority. This angel is doing it on another being. But it's interesting to me that this is the origin of the custom that we follow to this day in some part. He is about to say something, and and it's the truth. And so he is raising his right hand. His left hand has in it the Bibliridian, and he makes a solemn oath. Sound familiar? Witnesses do it before they testify in court, and, and certainly those who hold office taking the oath of office, do the very same thing. In fact, this is the text that underscores that tradition. We just read it. A new president will be sworn into office. And he will place his left hand on the Bible, I would assume, and raise his right hand to heaven. And he will say something like, I solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the president of the United States and, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. That began, by the way, with the very first president, George Washington. That's where the tradition came from, and this was the text that formed the foundation of it. And so Washington placed his hand, his left hand on a Bible. It was on a deep red cushion, raised his right hand, said those words. And when he got to the end of those words, which were scripted to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, he then went off script and spontaneously bowed his head and he kissed the Bible and added the words, so help me God. Now in the history of America and the birth of the civilized world, 1788 to 1800, a thick history book I'm enjoying reading a few pages every day by Jay Winnick. He says that at that moment when Washington went off script and kissed the Bible and said, so help me God, the crowd broke into applause and burst into tears. It was a solemn moment in the history of America. Well, here is a most solemn moment in the history of of the world. Can you imagine this angel? In his hand is the revelation of God. His right hand is raised toward heaven, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, and his voice is heard around the planet. Swearing to tell the truth, and his oath is based upon what? Notice carefully, verse 6 again. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea, and the things in it. In other words, his oath is based on a literal creation of the world and everything in it. 
Interesting. How important is a belief in theistic creationism? Well, ladies and gentlemen, evidently here's the defendant for the truthfulness of God's word. It justifies God's judgment. Since he is the creator of all things, then he would have the prerogative to judge all things. Since he created all things, he has the right to destroy all things and replace it with his new creation if it so pleases him. But if he didn't create it and all things in it, he would need somebody's permission to tamper with it. Or he would simply be impolite. Or worse yet, rude. But no, this is God's creation. And John divides it here into its classic three sections. Heavens, earth, and sea. And then he repeats three times for emphasis. And maybe you could underline each of these three phrases. So there isn't any shadow of a doubt in these words. And the things in it. And the things in it. And the things in it. Specific, particular hands-on, this is origins here. And the oath of the angel is based upon the truthfulness of God creating the origins of everything. I was having lunch with our seminary faculty along with a former seminary president who was consulting with our dean and faculty through the process of accreditation for Shepherd's Seminary. He made the comment over lunch of one particular college once known as an evangelical college. But as recently as it continues to slide, adopted the view that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are mere myth. They are not literal historical fact. In other words, this institution has now denied a literal creation in favor of some form of evolution. The problem they've created with themselves, however, is they've basically thrown the word of God away because every other passage now that deals with creationism has to be thrown out as well. In fact, if you deny the first 11 chapters of the Bible, you're going to have to deny the last 11 chapters of the Bible because the last 11 chapters reinforce the reality of a literal creation. Here you have an angel swearing an oath upon the truth of God being creator. And everything on the earth and in the sea and in the heavens originated as the created handiwork of God. So this school is simply going the way of the world. I find it interesting in studying, barely studying, just enough to know a little bit, the major religious systems of the world who do not follow the scriptures literally or wholly or solely, that they adopt or allow some form of evolution. It's interesting to me. You get outside the book and taking it literally and you fall for that. So Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Shintoism, uh, animism, Islam, Judaism, Catholicism, and liberal Protestantism all allow for some form, some sliver, some shade of evolution. It's interesting that by the time the Apostle Paul began to preach the gospel, think of the fact that by that time in history, Buddhism had reached the Mediterranean where he was preaching. And so what does Paul preach as he delivers the gospel. Listen, he said, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain idols, these vain things, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Sound familiar? It's exactly what John is saying this angel swore upon The truth of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, isn't the truth without a living creator, God, who created all there is. Furthermore, the book of Revelation isn't the truth without a creator, God. 
For we see here in chapter 10 a reference to a literal creation, and we will see in chapter 21 a literal new creation. And one demands the other, doesn't it? Doesn't the latter demand the former? In other words, if God wasn't able to create the first universe, how in the world do you think he's going to create the next universe? And how do you hope to get there? Isn't that somewhat slightly miraculous? If you die before the rapture, aren't you believing in a resurrection? You're planning on a home God created for you? Listen, if he isn't able to create, he isn't going to be able to recreate, and he certainly isn't going to be able to resurrect anything. So all of what we believe, if you think about it, hinges on the reality of our God being the creator of all there is and everything that is in it. Revelation 10.6. Now notice the angel's announcement. This is the content of his message. It's very short, but after making that oath, he says in verse 6, there will be, here's the truth, there will be delay no longer. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. We've looked at this earlier in passing, but in other words, He's saying here there's going to be no further delay as God accelerates his kingdom program. The seventh angel is about to sound and there's nothing in the way of him sounding. After this interlude, it's going to take off like lightning and it's soon going to be over with a final battle and then the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. And so these judgments, the mystery of these judgments will be culminated. The word mystery appears often in Scripture. It's a word that refers to divinely revealed truth, once hidden, later revealed, which is so profound that even when it is revealed, we go, oh, that is a mystery. That's amazing. It's hard to grasp. And so you read in Matthew 13 of the mystery of the kingdom. You read in Romans 11 about the mystery of Israel's blindness. You read in 1 Corinthians 15 about the mystery of the rapture. In 1 Timothy uh, 3, the, the mystery of the incarnation. In Ephesians 5, the mystery of Christ and the church. And now here in Revelation 10, the word is used to speak of the mystery of God's unfolding judgment prophesied by the prophets of old. Now, it will have, by the way, encouraging impact for all those who have come to believe in Christ who are still living, who are living, I should say, in the tribulation, those living prior to it are raptured. Many will come to faith in Christ, will see from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And those living through these horrors will take great comfort in a text like this. Why? Because for those who believed in Christ during the tribulation, one author wrote, living in a world now overrun by demons, murder, sexual immorality, drug abuse, thefts, and unparalleled natural disasters, one after another, where now half the world's population has been killed, carnage everywhere, corpses lying in the open. The promise here in this verse that God's glorious plan is actually on schedule. The promised kingdom is near when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will bring great comfort and hope in the midst of earth's judgment. It will give them hope that it's just about over. Now something strange happens, and I want to cover this chapter, so let me cover this quickly. Something strange happens here with this Angel. We've, we've seen the angel's appearance. We've heard the angel's announcement. And now I want you to notice the apostle's 
personal application. Look at verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was indeed made bitter. It's fascinating that John will now become a literal object lesson for us all. The word of God is sweet, isn't it? It's sweet as honey. Yet it's truth when it is understood We could speak metaphorically of it being digested. It can bring bitter tears and sorrow and difficulty and conviction and guilt. The idea here was also performed by Ezekiel, who also ate a portion of God's revelation and then delivered the message to the people of God. And Ezekiel recorded in Ezekiel 3.3 that the scroll was as sweet as honey. He literally becomes an object lesson. He literally eats this Bibliridian. And it's sweet to his mouth, but it becomes bitter, sour. You could translate it heartburn. It it produces discomfort in him. He becomes an object lesson of the truth of God, which is always sweet and good. And yet, the result of the word of God may bring great sorrow. Now, this concept was more familiar to John's generation than, than ours. You need to understand that in the ancient Jewish world, a young boy would learn the alphabet as he'd write it out on his little slate, taught by his little teacher. He, he would be motivated by the fact that, that as he wrote out the letters, he was writing them with a homemade little potion of a mixture of flour and honey. And he would, he would write out those big letters on his slate. And as he sounded out the letters correctly to his teacher, he would be allowed to lick those letters off his slate. And that was an incentive to learn your alphabet Quickly, it was also a nice mid-morning snack. Well, we've, we've taken that idiom and we use it, or that literal practice, and we've, we've used it as an idiom. We, we talk about devouring a good book. We talk about digesting some truth, don't we? So John is literally eating the little pamphlet, which then becomes a literal illustration of this picture. God's word is sweet, But this revelation here is bringing great sorrow and bitterness. And he becomes the object lesson for the truth. It's sweet because it's God's word. It's bitter because it is God's judgment. And you have found the same to be true, have you not? That the word of God is indeed sweet. It is indeed good. But yet sometimes the message it carries brings sorrow. I'll give you one illustration. A man came up to me with tears in his eyes and he said his father had passed away a few months ago and the tears in his eyes were sorrow. Why? Because he believed the word of God and he told me that his father had never accepted Christ and so according to the word of God he knew where his father would be forever. The word of God which is true brought sorrow. Sometimes the word of God to your own life brings a great burden, doesn't it? Doesn't it bring Deep conviction? Doesn't your obedience to it bring pain sometimes? Maybe loneliness? Standing alone for the truth? It requires of you obedience that is difficult? It it speaks of testing and, and trials, and they're never sweet but painful. 
By faith we accept both honey and bitter, both sweet and sour, both pleasant and painful aspects of what God's word demands. You know what the problem in the church today is? Well, there are many of them. Let me give you one of them. The church is often represented now by pastors who don't want to deliver the bitter news of God's truth. So they resist words like sin and judgment and guilt and hell. They go on Larry King Live. And they refuse to say anything about a coming judgment, about an eternal hell, about a holy and wrathful God and this coming day of wrath. Listen, God knew that that temptation would always be there, even for those who truly know him, that we would resist the bitter announcement of his sweet word, the offensive nature of his wonderful gospel, the truth about heaven and, by the way, hell. And so God addresses this temptation, even with John in the very last verse of this chapter. And they said to me, listen, John, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. They said to me, this is a reference back to the thunderous voices of God. Third person plural, which is in this text an indefinite reference. This is going back to the voices, as it were, of God. God is speaking to John. He says, look, I know you know the bitterness of it. Don't hold back. Deliver it. Preach it. You must continue delivering the truth. If you hold back, it won't help anybody. It won't help you. It certainly won't help your people. It won't help the church. And it won't help the world. You must deliver the truth. It is bitter, sweet, yes, but deliver all of it. And for us as believers, we obey all of it. The easy parts, the hard parts, the stuff that's easy to swallow, and the stuff that's hard to swallow. In 1955, when Billy Graham was preaching the truth of heaven and hell, the gospel of Christ literally around the world when he was only 35 years old. You can imagine it. His reputation was renowned. And he was in London this, this year in 55. He was holding an evangelistic crusade at Wembley Stadium. And he received an invitation to number 10 Downing Street where the prime minister lived, of course. And, and so he accepted the invitation. And upon his arrival... His biographer records that Graham was introduced to a weary-looking but keen-eyed Sir Winston Churchill, who was actually in his last year as prime minister. Chomping on his unlit cigar, Churchill looked Graham over with a penetrating eye and then said, and I quote, Young man, I've heard a great deal about these crusades you're having up at Wembley. Now I want to ask you a question. You know the troubled shape the world is in. Personally, I don't think the world has much longer to go. And he paused and said, Can you give an old man any hope? Let me read further. It seemed to Graham that Churchill was seeking hope, not merely for a troubled world, but for an aging and troubled man. So he took out the pocket New Testament he had with him, always had with him, and showed the prime minister that the Bible offers not only hope for the world in the ultimate triumph of Jesus Christ, but hope for individual human beings in the plan of salvation. If Churchill ever made a decision, Billy Graham never learned about it. Nine years after that singular conversation, 
Winston Churchill passed away. Ladies and gentlemen, the only hope for anyone is in the bitter, sweet word of God. Can I ask you a question? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Maybe you're resisting him because you don't like the bitter part. Maybe you're resisting the gospel because you don't like that other stuff. You resent it. You resent the call to humble yourself and admit you're a sinner. I'm not here to to convince you or talk you into anything. Only God's spirit can woo you to the Father. But I would pray that you would be like the woman who emailed me. She was so excited and she said, after years of testimony before my friend, I was able to pray with her to receive Christ as her Savior. I would pray that you would be like the man who sat in my office a few days ago and after hearing the gospel and talking it over for for some time, he bowed his head and prayed right there to make Christ his Lord and Savior. I would pray you'd be like that. Because this bittersweet truth is true. There is no other hope apart from Jesus Christ. So what have you done with him? Father, thank you for delivering to us The truth, sweet words because they come from you and they are true and we can rest our souls on their veracity. Bitter because we know what it means for those who reject you. Maybe even some here today, Father, who do not believe in our creator God, who have chosen not to believe our Lord I pray, Father, that perhaps even today they would bend their heart and their knee to humble themselves and admit their sinfulness and offer that to you along with everything about them, heart, mind, soul, and body, and receive you as King of kings and Lord of lords. And for those of you who believe, as this worship is dedicated to the exaltation of our Savior and the edification of the believer, I want us to end by reminding ourselves of this wonderful truth that Christ is certainly worth following. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he is on his throne today. No matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens in an election, no matter what happens in our world, we, Father, together... Rejoice that you are sovereign emperor of all earth, heaven, sea, and everything in it. And we long as well for the culmination of these days and that new heaven and new earth cause us to anticipate that even more and to long for that and to look for that and to live in light of its coming. We pray it in Jesus' name.